This is Superlative, a podcast about watches, the people behind them, and the worlds that inspire them. Spending time with the blog to watch community and the stories we discover. Let's get started. Hey everyone, Ariel Adams here with the Superlative Podcast. I'm very proud to have Mr. Dirk Kussler as my guest today. Dirk Kussler is an author. He is the son of Clive Kussler. And I have a feeling, Dirk, that your name is the same as the uh, main character in your father's novels. That's not a coincidence, is it? No, it is not a coincidence. And uh, my story is that I came first and Pitt's named after me, and I'm going to stick to that story. But uh, <laughs> no, actually, it's true. Uh, the character is, is named after me. I, I was born... Uh, 1961, and my father started uh, writing books, I guess, around 67 or thereabouts. So uh, since his hero was Dirk Pitt, I guess I can uh, make the claim that he was named after me. It's true that in novel writing, coming up with character names is particularly tough, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is. And I know he he wanted uh, something sort of short and snappy, so I think uh, he focused on having a one-syllable name, both first and second. Uh, Not quite sure where. He got the name Dirk. It's a Dutch name, and there's no, <laughs> no Dutch in our family that I know of. Um, Sounds cool. Sounds manly. Yeah, I guess. And then Pitt is an old English name. So, uh, you know, how he married the two together and, and put that up, I don't know. But uh, he, never, he never told you the story? He wasn't just, like, brainstorming names and thinking, Dirk, Dirk, that sounds good. I like that. I, you know, I think so. It wasn't, wasn't like any any particular source of inspiration, I think, for the name. So I did that with my son. I just, you know, tried to think what names would sound good with the last name, what names would be hireable, what names would be hard to make fun of on the schoolyard. Like, this is practical stuff that parents need to do. But in your father's case, obviously, the name took on a different dimension as being the, the lead character. How many books? A lot, right? A lot. Well, you know, he said has co-series as well. So right. in addition to the Dirk Pitt books, which there's about 26 or so, uh, he started additional series of, of other books. And so overall, gosh, there's about 85 or so. In- that is a lot. That's, that's a whole, it's like Star Wars. Yeah, it's, it's amazing to it's, keep track of. Right? It's huge. And there must be canon as well, right? I'm sorry? Uh, like an official storyline, right? Because you have all these different stories and you start to add on. You could, you know, the fans get upset, right? You, you change a fact or something. That's not how it was spelled. The dates are off. Oh, you know? right, right. Yeah, yeah. And the other thing, other problem is, is not tripping over yourself. Right. right? It's sort of like, okay, here's a great plot. Wait a minute. We used that, you know, 12 books ago. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I just, for April Fool's Day, did a funny story where I said a watch brand needed to create AI to make sure that they didn't accidentally design the same watch twice. <laughs> right. Uh-huh. Right. Yeah. Because they design so many watches sometimes look similar and you know, I could see that innocently happening. That's a great idea. We should <laughs> we should use that and feed all the books in and, and have the program. Yeah, say, everyone hey. talks about the bad side of AI, but now again, as as a working writer, there's like a lot of things that it can do to make life easier because writing a book is hard work, and I'm sort of trying to marry it over at some point to watchmaking. But like a, a book is a production; it's a layering of skills, right? And I, I guess you learned in the best way possible, sort of under your dad. You know, I, I obviously grew up reading his books. I, you know, I was I was a young kid, a teenager when when he uh, was first published. Uh, he let me read the manuscripts as he read, wrote them before they sent off to the publisher. So, uh, you know, it's funny. I, I never really had a burning desire to be a writer. It wasn't my expectation. But having grown up with a father who was a writer, it was like, no, oh, it's no big deal. Okay, writing books. Because you, you see know? the whole process. You see the whole thing. He does it all the time. It can't be that hard, right? Yeah. <laughs> then, it, then you sit down and do it, and you realize that, it is a very difficult challenge. So let's first talk about how Doxa got into the book. This is a story I heard. I don't know if it's true, 
So Doxa is this Swiss watchmaker that has for a long time produced a diving watch. And, and especially historically, it was, a, it was a real watchman for diving. Today, you have plenty of watches that can dive, but we know that most people aren't actually taking them diving. If you're really diving, you're mostly using a diving computer. But back in the 1960s, there were no diving computers, and you needed to have a trustable watch that you could dive underwater with. And like other things sold at dive shops, wristwatches could be sold there as well, sort of necessary equipment, right? <laughs> Especially so you don't get decompression sickness. And he, your father, was working at a dive shop. I don't know the, the, the facts around that. And I guess ostensibly he either wore Doxa because that was the watch to wear or maybe the store was selling it. I don't know. But at some point becoming a writer, he chose that watch that he was wearing that he was familiar with and it just sort of made sense. Is that the story as it is? Do I have parts of it wrong? No, no, that's true. But it was, it was sort of a fluke, actually. So uh, he was working in advertising in Los Angeles. He, okay. was, he was a copywriter. And uh, I guess this happens in the ad industry. The, uh, uh, the company lost a, a major client, and they laid off a number of employees, and he was one of them. And uh, he had started writing at that point, uh, I think part-time, like on nights and weekends. He was starting to scribble with a book. And... Uh, it was actually my mother. She, uh, she said uh, while he was looking for another ad job, uh, she noticed this help wanted ad for this dive shop in the town next door. And she said, well, look. Where, where by the way, was it? Uh, I think the dive shop was in Newport Beach. We live okay. on the coast of Mesa, California. Okay. I'm from LA. So. Okay. Yeah. And uh, so um, she was working actually uh, as a dispatcher in the evenings at the police department. So she said, hey, you know, we've got enough money to make ends meet. You're interested in writing about the sea. Why don't, why don't you work for this Get, take the job at the dive shop, you'll be exposed to the sea, maybe it'll inspire you, and you can hone your dive skills. So he actually listened to my mother. He took the, <laughs> took the job. Great advice. <laughs> and uh, uh, he worked there for a year or two. He became a master diver. He used to take uh, uh, newbies out to, to Catalina. And I uh, remember him coming home as a kid with bags of abalone back then when you could harvest them. Legally. Right, right. And, uh, and as he hoped, during slow afternoons in the dive shop, he'd peck away at his manuscript in the back room. And so he did that for about a year or two, and then I think he finished his manuscript, and then he ended up getting another high-paying ad job. So he quit the dive shop. But he was such a creative guy, so while he was there, he put his ad skills to use to promote the dive shop. Uh, and I remember visiting as a kid on a weekend. He, he purchased a, a surplus Navy life raft and put it up on the roof and filled it with mannequins and, and wetsuits and spear guns you could see from a cool. mile away. And uh, they had a sign out front with lettering on it. And I think he used to put kind of, you know, silly sayings on the sign. And then they famously had a, a call-in um, dive report. You'd call up the phone number and they'd have a recording about the daily dive conditions for people interested in whether, you know, it's safe to dive sure. that day. And he would put crazy things on there, you know. It's, yeah, <laughs> you know, saw, saw mermaid sightings and submarine races and, and everything else, you know, in addition to the dive report. So people used to call him just to listen to the crazy things that he had to say, even though they weren't interested in diving. So uh, he boosted the sales of the dive store, you know. And so the owners were, were real pleased with him. So when he quit, uh, they gave him as a going away gift. They, they said, hey, you can pick out a, dive, a Doxa dive watch here. Oh, I see. That was his gift. Yeah. So because they were so pleased with the work he'd done, even though he wasn't there for that long, uh, they get, made a gift of a, of, of a watch. And so I think I'm told he had a choice of colors and he picked, picked the orange base. That was the most legible underwater. Right. Right. That's and why. so it it's was the original Aqualung uh, uh, orange face dive watch that he took with him. And, uh, Where did he get this? I guess you could call it a playful performative side. 
Um, I, you know, I don't know. He just, you know, he, he was a gregarious guy. He was uh, just a very creative, creative guy. You know, in some ways he lived in his own mind, but uh, uh, he always liked to do things differently. You know, he, he never liked to follow the crowd. And uh, uh, I think, you know, it's just kind of the impetus of his creativity and his, his vivid imagination, I think, really accounted for his success in everything he did. I have to admit that while I like to read, I never got around to reading any of your father's books. So it's like you would, I would go to the bookstore a lot and I would see the Clive Custler name. It was always very big on the books. And so it's just I, for some reason, never got around to it. But I always, again, growing up, would be shopping in that section, right? I mostly skewed towards sort of like when I was younger, fantasy and sci-fi, and then a little bit more sort of modern day adventure. I just, I just never quite broach that that author. You know how it is, because it's like you have to investment. You can't you don't just read one. And and as we were talking about, there's a lot of books. But again, it was very clear to me that this is one of the lead adventure writers and there was so much boldness with it. And you said that you were, you know, not an adult, but obviously you 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 recall the time. What was different in your family, in your life, in your dad's life, going from being the creative guy that was kind of doing cool stuff, didn't seem to be high stakes, until wait a minute, you're known, there's a reputation, you now have to do things the right way, it's going to be a series. I mean, it, it adds a sense, a, a, a level of seriousness and responsibility to what's supposed to be sort of play and creativity. And I was curious, what that change in your life and your family? Uh, you know, I was, I was a little bit older when, when he kind of hit his success. You okay. know, he, he, Takes fears. He used to joke that, that uh, people said, oh, congratulations on your overnight success as a writer. And he said, huh. he said, yeah, it only took me 11 years. So, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, he started writing in the 60s. He wasn't published until 1973. And, and his, oh. fir his first two books uh, didn't sell particularly well. So it wasn't until uh, 76, uh, I believe, that uh, Race of Titanic came out. And that was his third book. And that was just a breakout novel uh, for whatever It just reason. happens that way, right? There's yeah. no way of predicting it. Sometimes a third book isn't as good as the first one, but it takes a while. And... I think, going again, going back to the watch industry, this is a, a proof of this in action where there's some great designs that take a while to hit, to hit on. But once they do, there's a lot of stickiness. Right. And we look at the Doxa watches, and the ones from today look surprisingly like the ones that your father must have been selling at the dive shop, right? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, and yeah. I'm guessing in the, book, there's, in the books there's a lot of that as well, whereas you, you pick up them down the series – there's a familiarity, or does the world itself evolve and the world of the 10th book is very different than the world of the first? No, not at all. I mean, it, it is a series, but, but you can jump right in at any point. So, right. so there's not a, a large carryover from one book to the next. They're pretty much standalone. And, and the characters are pretty much the same characters. You know, I mean, his, his level of writing, you can see a clear uh, evolution from the right. first couple of books, probably till his third or fourth, where he sort of found, found a formula found the formula for him that works. I, you know, he, he usually begins with a historical prologue and then kind of jumps forward. And uh, so even, even his, his first book, for example, I think Ted is the main character. And it was sort of, Ted appears on page one and he's on every page to the end. Whereas you get to the third or fourth book, all of a sudden you have different subplots, different characters. Ted disappears for several chapters and comes back. Uh, and so the books became more complex and, and uh, hopefully more appealing, I think, too, just maybe maybe more interesting as, as the way he laid What's it. the personality of Dirk? Is it someone in your life who's a real person? Is it an amalgamation? Like, who is this character? Uh, well, for me, 
it's it's a lot of my father. Right. I mean, I, I see, you know, when I read the character, obviously there's influences of him. You know, they, they happen to be the same height. They happen to have, you know, same dark hair. Right. Uh, father didn't have green eyes, but uh, obviously a lot of similarities. So Interesting. Uh, so it's kind of like he's still around. It, it is. It is. I mean it's, it's, I mean, it's fun for me as I'm writing the books today. Uh, you know, I can feel that presence. And, yeah. And sometimes if I get stuck or I think, well, what would Pitt do here? I would think either, oh, what would my father do in terms of writing what Pitt would do here? Or maybe what my father would do himself, you know, just in terms of maybe dialogue or or, you know, choices, things like that. Do you still, again, because I know we're going to get to some of your books now, but do you still write books for Dirk Pitts? Yes. Okay, so so the character lives on, and I guess it's a similar style. Rather than your father thinking, what would I do? You now have the ability to think, what might my dad do? Is that, I'm just trying to understand when, when the character makes decisions, you know, obviously it's a formula, but there still has to be some spontaneity. The character still has to do something that the reader doesn't expect all the time. Oh, sure, sure. So it's it's kind of walking that line. It's like you have to, to, to maintain truth to, to the character as he's created and how he's existed over 25 books. Uh, but right, at the same time, he's in an independent story, independent situation. And then so, yeah, you have to kind of finagle, you know, how he's going to react on that basis. So... Was your father wearing this Doxa? Like, was this a watch that was like his daily wear? Was it part of a collection? You're nodding. So I'm oh, guessing yes. that was his uh, watch. This, this was, I mean, early memories. He wore that watch forever. I mean, it was, of course, it stood out for me as, as a kid because, A, you never see dive watches. I mean, back in the 60s, early 70s. You didn't so it was see, rare to see. Yeah, you didn't see people wearing dive watches. In Interesting. The, Such a contrast today, right? Right. And you certainly didn't see people wearing orange dive watches. Interesting. So the colors to that as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That's what really I think was unique. Uh, Did he like that? Did he like to stick out? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, okay. you know, I, I, <laughs> he had a sizable ego, but he wasn't, I think, you know, out to draw attention to himself. But again, he liked he liked to do things differently. And uh, he had his own sort of take on the world. So. so I, I again, I'm just sort of thinking about you younger. And I know that when kids have, kids are always embarrassed of their parents a little bit. Not all the time, but just to a degree. And especially when you have parents that call a lot of attention to themselves. You know, uh, I, I'm sure as an adult looking back and that you're probably very proud of your dad. But at the time, like what kind of things did your dad do? You were like, oh, dad, come on, not all the attention. Uh, it wasn't so much that. I think it just, just <laughs> he was there. You know, I, I thought he was kind of a cool guy, actually. I mean, I, I uh, my sisters and I joke, the only time that we were embarrassed is, is for some reason we go to a restaurant and, and he didn't like poor service. And sometimes he, okay. he would be a little obnoxious if the service wasn't good. Very LA thing. But, uh, but otherwise, no, he was, he was kind of a cool dad. I mean, he, you know, once he became successful, he started collecting antique cars. And uh, that was a, a great hobby that, you know, we sort of shared. I grew up with that, too. And uh, just uh, his interest in, in old, old things, old right. cars. And, and obviously, we got into shipwrecks and, and uh, uh, the whole you know, Numa aspect as well. So... He was into a lot of interesting things that, that you know, my, my friend's fathers weren't into, obviously. So, uh, you know, in some ways he opened my eyes. And uh, I don't know, I guess I just always kind of admired the things that he was interested in, uh, just, just being different. I mean, it's so many hobbies, it's hard not to be intrigued by at least some of them, right? Right. And when you become an author, it doesn't matter if you write fiction or nonfiction, you have to become familiar with so many product areas, so many... Um, educational areas, so many categories, like it, it watches is the same thing. I mean, I've become educated about everything from sports to uh, to physics. 
uh, because of this. And when you have to write about adventures and shipwrecks, you, you have to be technically accurate. And I think that there's a real distinguishing factor between those writers who do not ask the readers to suspend belief and those who want things to be as plausible as possible. And, and it seems like you and your father were of the types that wanted to make sure that your stories could happen. Is that is that correct? Yeah, yeah, that's true. I mean, he he incorporated a few things that, that you know, <laughs> might be considered far-fetched. Uh, but, I, you know, in my writing, I think I, I kind of take that uh, maybe a little more seriously in terms of, yeah, you don't want to break that, that bond of, of belief with the reader. And, uh, I, you know, maybe his skill was that better, better than mine in terms of, of stretching it. Uh, but, yeah, that's certainly true. You lose the reader, and then that's, that's the worst thing that can happen as a writer. During your father's career, and I guess during yours, we've seen this shift from you publish something and feedback comes in the form of professional reviews and things like that, to our modern era, which is very different, and there's sort of feedback everywhere and stuff like that. Now, I know writers tend to want to please the fans, and you tend to want to give people what they want. How, in your opinion, has this sort of new volume of information fundamentally changed the task of being a writer? Because it's, it's, it's probably important to ignore some of it, probably not all of it, but you know, people want to use data. Some people say, no, just do whatever you want. If they like it, great. Other people say, like, listen to your fans. They know what they want. You should give it to them. Um, where does sort of you fall on that spectrum and how do you, you know, how, what do you want to say about that? Because I think it's very interesting because again, as, a, as an online writer, feedback has been something from the beginning, but I fully recognize that for a lot of writers, they, they can work for years, decades, and not really get a lot of feedback from the people reading the work. Yeah, I, you know, I'm old school, so I, I'm not real wired in to a lot of the social media aspects of it. So to be honest, I don't pay a great deal of attention to Maybe it. Maybe a good idea. You know, I mean, I, I, you know, if you're having a bad day of writing, it's, it's always fun to get on there and see some good reviews to kind of give you a boost. Yeah. And then, and, and then yeah, you do want to see the criticisms. But, um, you know, I, to be honest, I don't, I don't spend a lot of time on that. There, there's an organization called the Clive Custler Collector Society, right? Okay, that that's are helpful. Some, that are some serious fans that, that really love the books. And they have a convention every year. And, oh. and uh, I attend the convention. I, I know a lot of the, the folks there. And, and so they, they're a good resource in terms of bouncing off uh, ideas, some of the, the people. And, and they, you know, they'll keep us honest, too. If I, you know, hey, you made a, <laughs> one of the characters, you know, had a, was driving a Volkswagen here. All of a sudden, he's driving a Corvette. You know, when, what happened there? And it's like, oh, yeah, we missed that one, didn't we? So, uh, you know, it is fun to see some of the. Some so of the you feedback. get up on those panels discussions, right? And then a bunch of people ask you questions. They start throwing darts at you, like, "Hey, wow. yeah. <laughs> no, no, no!" They're actually super supportive. Yeah. Where do the Where do those conventions take place? Uh, a lot of them are in Denver, actually. So uh, they bounce around uh, okay. in Vegas. They're typically uh, uh, out west. But uh, so my father has a car collection in Denver. Uh, my sister runs. Oh, it's like a permanent collection. Though. Yeah, the antique cars. Uh, so the conventions are often held in Denver, and then they'll have a, uh, an event at the at the collection itself. So what what kind of cars did the character Dirk Pitts like to drive when your father was writing? Well, again, it, it just reflected the taste of, of, of him. I know. And the cars that he collected, right? And so, uh, unfortunately, he wasn't into Ferraris, which was a joke. If you were to start <laughs> buying Ferraris back then, you know, we'd, <laughs> we'd be a lot better off worth a lot right now. Yeah. But, uh, uh, I mean, given his era, I mean, he liked classic cars of the 30s primarily. Oh, interesting. Uh, so that's probably the, the largest uh, aspect of his collection. There's some 50s cars in there, too, uh, that he, he grew up with. But uh, 
he liked uh, he liked custom bodied cars of the thirties. And that again, going back to unique, you know, things the cars, coaches, cars yeah, that were unique, yeah. that there were, you know, one off uh, in those days, um, the, the larger makes, you know, Packard, Rolls Royce, you'd buy a chassis and you send it to a custom coach maker and they would put the body on for you and you could approve the design. And so it, a lot of those classic cars of that area, there's only one or yeah. two or three, or, you know, very limited numbers of that body. And, and I think uh, uh, he certainly had a good eye for, for design as well. A lot of the cars in the collection are, are just uh, beautifully designed. Did you go out to like uh, Pebble Beach and compete in the concourse? He, uh, yeah, a couple of times. Uh, he wasn't really into that so much, uh, <laughs> but he went to Pebble Beach a couple of times. And it's funny you say that because uh, we actually, my sisters and I put a car in last summer, um, uh, a Talbot Lugo that he had showed, I think, uh, gosh, like 30 years ago. And uh, we had the car had to be re-restored. And when it came out of restoration, we, we took it out to the show. And that was a lot of fun. I mean, those custom coaches from the 30s seem to be what wins like all the time. Like I will look every year and I've seen, and they're, and they're amazing. They're gorgeous. Yeah. And those are always super unique cars. Yeah. Usually the, the women. Nothing like handmade, hand-drawn. I mean, something about adding a formula to things versus doing it like a one-off, like in terms of quality, you can, you can tell a difference. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it really, it really captures, you know, the design elements of the designer. And, and so the, the, you know, that's exposed that element and that talent. Is I'm just trying to think about in stories, how you'd, how you'd work in driving a thirties car. That's going to be <laughs> you'd hard. Be, to you'd be surprised. <laughs> <laughs> just turn the thing off properly. There's, there's always, like a, a getaway there's always an antique car show somewhere that, you know, the okay. kid stumbles along or, or, you know, in a dusty garage, you open up and gosh, there's a, uh, you know, it still works. It's an old Bentley sitting here that still works. So I can see yeah, that. It's it's not that hard. Actually. So we had so a lot of people again, even today, have those fantasies of those. They call them the the bar the barn finds. Barn find, yep. You know, like who knows what cars are there, and then of course you'd have to restore them, which costs as much as the car every couple of years, right? I was just at the, um, this event called the California Mille, oh. which is uh, I mean, you know, the Mille Miglia. So it's it's done by Haggerty now. And basically, they take about uh, 60 collectors who bring out their cars that have to be 57 or previous, um, and they drive it for 1,000 miles in California. And I, the last couple of years, I've hung out with them for part of it, driving an, an old Porsche. But what's funny is the collectors don't just bring one car usually, because the things break down. So they not only bring like a, like a truck full of cars, but also like full-time mechanics. They have backup and all that, yeah. So they're just <laughs> driving and braking and switching and braking. And, and it's like the entire time, they, and they get excited about, you know, discussing the damage they've had that day or this thing broke. Uh, one guy apparently like overnight flew a mechanic from Europe just, just to fix something and flew him back home because they have those old Ferraris you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, those things are worth a million bucks a pop and, and a lot of money to keep. Because those cars, again... Just driving made them break, you know? People don't recognize that for it to be super lightweight, it also needed to be built like a matchbox. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. I, you know, we forget forget how unreliable cars were back then. I mean, I tell my kids that. It's like, you know, when I was growing up as a kid, you know, there was always a car on the side of the road with a flat tire or, or broken down or overheating. You know, when's the last time you car, saw a car overheat? Yeah, yeah, uh, like steam coming out yeah. of it. <laughs> uh, so, you know, take that back to, to hand-built sports cars uh, yeah. or what these guys were driving in the 50s, and especially the Italian stuff. I mean, I'm so happy watches aren't like that. Yeah. I mean, with the old watches, to a degree, there's issues. But with new watches today, even the ones that look old, like, you know, 
like docs, uh, and I think the watch industry is interesting because you can appreciate the old while having the convenience of new in a, in a lot of ways. And not just at docs, a lot of brands, but this industry has done such a good job of tying into that real uh, emotion that you and your father and a lot of guys have of loving vintage, whether it's, whether it's cars or boats or houses or planes or timepieces, uh, not too many other uh, equipment you have. You don't want to you know, be into like old phones or something like that. It's not going to do you very good. But being able to celebrate this sort of antiquated, quirky, charming technology in today's world adds a lot of fun. You ever think about that? The sort of like oddity that incorporating something old into modern life adds a degree of fun that you don't have without it? Yeah, yeah. You know, it's funny. I, I just read an article about how um, there's a, a group of people that are saving typewriters and they're starting to use typewriters on a daily basis oh. instead of computers, right? To write letters and things. <laughs> as as, as a that. fellow writer, I can laugh about that a I lot. I mean, it's, it's humorous at one level, but, but it, it's sort of like, you know, you can understand the counter to all this high-tech stuff and, and phones that we're glued to. And it's sort of like, hey, it's nice having that, that analog touch and maybe something different. So maybe, you know, in a, in a similar mentality that, that it allows you a touch, his, touch with history, I guess, you know, going back to old watches or old cars that, that you know, can take you to another time, I guess. Yeah, I, it's just, just things I wonder, right? Because I'm asked a lot of the time to explain, Ariel, why is this watch appealing? Why is this brand appealing? Why is this one not appealing? And oftentimes it comes in these small nuances of human psychology. And as we know, the right thing is right because of this, it's like a cocktail. It's like a blend of the right factors. You don't just throw a bunch of, you know, it's pretty, it's high end, and it's got a color everyone likes. It's going to be solid. No, it's, it's more complicated than that, just like a book. And I think that's why we celebrate when it's done well. Because anytime anybody goes to design a watch, write a book, uh, design a car, they want to do the best job possible. They really do. When it comes out as they intended, that's that small percentage of the time. And that's why we celebrate it, right? Yeah. And you don't know. I mean, I, when I write a book, I get to the end of it, and, and I'm probably my worst critic, and I have no idea. It's, it's just hard to, to, to self, self-analyze yeah. that, you know, is this a good product or not? Who do you rely on? Do you get, like, an editor? Yeah, yeah. So, okay. editor, the publisher, and I... Because I, I know what that's like. You're like, I don't know if this is good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> my wife, okay, tell me, is this... <laughs> need to round file it or not? But, uh, you know, so I'm sure it's the same with, with any sort of design, you know? I mean, obviously, it's, it's great when passion... Passion drives the result, but uh, ultimately, you never know what's going to succeed. Geneva-based watchmaker Raymond Weil invites you to discover the beautiful Caliber RW1212 automatic movement. Designed exclusively for Raymond Weil in Switzerland, the RW1212 features an exposed balance wheel symmetrically positioned on the dial under a traditional watchmaker's bridge. Inspired by the world's great musical composers and instrumentalists, Raymond Weil harmoniously integrates the RW1212 movement into a family of products that now also includes the visually captivating RW1212 skeleton. Raymond Weil is a family-owned and operated company that for more than 45 years has been celebrating independent watchmaking for enthusiasts everywhere. Visit raymond-weil.com to see more. So... Next to us here, because we're in person, most of these superlative episodes are done remotely. There's a there's a box. It's a Doxa box, and it has your dad's name on it, the Clive Custler edition. Obviously, Doxa has been open about the fact that uh, your father in the Dirk Pitts books, you know, 
feature this watch, but it hasn't been until now, at least to my recollection, there's been an official relationship. Why is it taking so long or what's special about right now? Well, actually it's not true. That's not entirely okay, true. So there has been one before. So um, in, uh, I think that was the late nineties, in part, I think because the popularity of, of Pitt, I think actually helped the sales of their orange based sub 300 T no watches. Uh, uh, Docs approached my father about doing actually some commemorative watches. So they did a number of them um, okay. 15, 20 years ago. Okay. There was a NUMA edition, there was a Sea Hunters. Uh, so uh, the last two years, it seems like it's been quiet. It seems right. like a big a big lag of time. I'm, I'm just wondering, because brands tend to like to jump onto this type of thing. Yeah, well, it, it's certainly in the case here, uh, just talking with, with Jan, is, is that this has been almost two, two and a half years in the making. So uh, certainly the concept was there. Uh, but uh, uh, sort of a careful process of, of getting to fruition. So Now, this watch does not have an orange face, and I'm guessing that you were, I guess, the creative lead on this, right? You wanted, you had a decision what this watch looked like? Not, not really. I wouldn't say I was a creative lead. I, okay. I, you know, they, they shared their proposals with me, and, and, and I certainly had uh, input and opinion on that. Okay. Uh, but I think the, the common thought was that, that they wanted to do something different. Uh, and, and again, sort of going back to who my father was, right, this... this uh, the guy who really appreciated doing things differently, uh, doing things uniquely, and and so sort of sort of the uh, part of the look on the watch is is relating to his shipwreck uh, searches, his underwater exploration, and it almost has a reflection of, of being like an artifact that uh, we'd find on a shipwreck. So, so yes, yeah, so I I haven't seen it yet, and I'm going to be shooting it soon. I'm excited, but it's a it's sort of a pre-aged watch, right? Correct. Yeah. I, I love this as a concept because, again, like everything in design, there's this massive difference of opinion. And same thing with old cars. Do you restore it to brand new? Do you keep the old patina of the paint job? And then you have a further evolution, which is brand new things made to look old, which, I, again, I happen to like a lot. In fact, I designed a watch that's brand new that's made to look old that came out that was really, really cool. So I'm all about it. But there's this sort of interesting, again, uh, debate that happens where some people are like, well, it should be new and I should get it old. You know, it's, it's this funny thing, right? You can't, you can't please everyone. But the end result of this watch, which is artistically aged, it's, it's kind of wow, right? It is. I mean, I don't know that there's any other way you could do that yourself. You or I could take a, a watch and bang it around <laughs> for 30 years and I don't think you'd get the same effect. So, uh, there's certainly some technology involved in, in getting to that point and getting to that look. But. I have a friend in Los Angeles whose company specializes making um, uh, pre-aged pre t-shirts, right? So they're supposed to be like band shirts. And we know that like people that like the band shirts, they love going to thrift stores and finding that concert shirt that someone bought in 1970-something. But those are hard to find, right? And so there's this new industry over the last, I guess, couple of decades of making ones that are meant to look old, which I think started with the pre-cut jeans, right? Remember when they would already oh, right. cut the holes? Yeah. That's sort of where it started. And I think there's um, a whole you know, area of Italian fashion design to making sure it looks like it's just destroyed just enough. And it's a whole other level of art, which when you see the end result and you realize it looks cool, you're like, right. But just theoretically speaking, if you don't know that area, it sounds... Again, to like your, your average consumer preposterous, right? Well, yeah, and you don't want to be the guy paying for what you think is a is a vintage rock and roll T-shirt was actually manufactured two weeks yeah, ago. Yeah, and it's, sometimes the ones that are made to look are more expensive, but they look perfect. They look really good, and that's an interesting question because you know characters like like Dirk Pitts and some of the things you're talking about with your father collecting vintage cars is an inherently niche concept. 
that the mainstream does not understand. Yet in your stories, there's probably a lot of pursuits that are niche and weird, but you have to sort of craft it for mainstream consumption. How do you pick and choose the, the topics without it being too esoteric and weird? Because I can see that being an issue, at least yeah, in the area of connoisseurship. Sure, sure. I mean, every, every book is a, is a challenge to put that together. Uh, you know, I generally start, and I think he probably did too, with a historical concept, historical mm -hmm. element, that find something that's, that's of historical interest. That and everyone then, knows about. Yeah, and then tried to build, build a plot around that. Uh, and and it's, it's sort of a trade-off too. I mean, there's modern technology, a lot of the underwater uh, search technology is incorporated in the book. So uh, you've got kind of a mix of that. And then Pitt being this old classicist, he likes <laughs> vintage cars and, and things like that. You know, you work that in too. So uh, I don't know. I, you know, I guess I, when I write the books, I'm, I'm not really thinking of a broad market. I'm, I'm trying to write an adventure story right. that I think is going to be entertaining. and Because uh, that can become an issue with writers who become so specialized, they end up writing in, in a way which is, I guess, so sophisticated that mainstream can understand. And I think part of your father's success and your success is in maintaining a mainstream voice, right? You have to. How, how do you, you have to almost probably self-police yourself sometimes, right? Yeah, that's true. Uh, editors certainly come in handy there too as well. But yeah, yeah, it's a concern. I mean, you just sort of hope that, that you know, your values are, are the same as, as you know, the general readership and the fans that you are. Uh, or, or reading your work and uh, kind of follow that path, I think. You mentioned going to some of those conventions, the, the ones in Dallas especially, and I'm actually just wondering, how many doxes do you see being worn in the crowd? A lot. Really? <laughs> a lot, yeah. So it's like, it's a known thing that like doxes the oh, watch. Yeah, yeah. So, so hardcore, hardcore Dirk Pitt fans, most of them will salivate for a doxer watch. Interesting. So how was how the watch represented in the books? Like, mind you, like, you know, I think of movies there's a lot of product placement in movies. And sometimes the watch is like an integral part of the story. And other times there's just like, you know, that quick three second shot on the wrist when they're checking the time, they got to run somewhere. Like how integral is, is, are the watches in some of the stories? It varies. I mean, certainly a lot of the stories, it is just maybe a quick reference. Okay. Uh, certainly you have to have a diving situation where maybe he's checking his, his decompression time and, uh, and so forth. Which you would do a lot if you were diving. Yeah. Yeah. So it depends on the scene. It depends on the book. So it's kind of a mixture, I guess. Okay. So, you'd so basically, you'd have to be a serial fan. You'd have to have read a few of the books and then recognize, like, this thing keeps popping up again and again. Right. As opposed to being this whole story about it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's just a little... Generally, I mean, there's small references. And, and exactly. You you'd probably wouldn't notice it until you'd read a couple of the books. You know, I'm, I'm thinking, because again, today, most dive watches are just made so consistently well, you don't have issues. Back then, I'm wondering, like, if there was a real issue of dive watches failing while you were diving. And I'm actually I'm not even sure, because it seems like it would be the type of thing that you would really worry about. I, I want to say, uh, for my recollection is, is, and I'm not sure where it's coming from, of, of watches that flooded, right? Of, see, of seeing watches that flooded, so... Maybe they were, I'm not sure that they were thinking of dive watches or watches that shouldn't have been taken in the water. But I, I mean, most of the time, you know, that may have been a problem. What brands say to me is people will take a dive watch underwater without screwing the crown back in. Mm -hmm. You know, it's usually like human error or something like that. But I've had dive watches that have not been that old, maybe 10 years old, a little bit older, that I've taken in the pool, not even like diving, diving, and they fogged up yeah. because of gaskets and things like that. And I guess it's just interesting to think about, you know, in this today, it's kind of, it's a nice thing to have an old watch and da, 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 da. And it's nice thing to have any watches. 
but it's not like, you know, if you're, if you're watch stops during the day today, you know, you have your phone, you have other things. Okay, inconvenient, but no big deal. But I think what's so important about the wristwatch, especially being an accessory for so many of these characters, was the fact that it was a life-saving device. Or if you didn't have it and you're out, you're diving, and your watch stops. I mean, it's you, you got to stop. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And like I say, before the the day of dive computers, I mean, you had to rely upon that to know how long did you uh, you were down. Um, you are probably a diver, and how much do you use your own diving and things like that as coming up with material for books? Uh, it, it helps. You know, I, I don't dive a great deal. Certainly my age, it's slowed down a lot. Uh, but I'm still involved with, with some of the shipwreck searches uh, with NUMA. And, uh, and that helps, just being exposed to the technology and being at sea for a week or two on a shipwreck search and, and researching ships too and, and some of the wrecks that we found over the years. So that all kind of feeds in. It gives you some some realistic touch points that you can incorporate into the books. Have you ever encountered, I guess, what they call underwater archaeology? Because I know that there are lots of places around the world that have not been very thoroughly explored, oftentimes because of difficulty in the water, the currents, and stuff like that, where there is, you know, human cities from a long time ago or structures, things like that. And I know that they're not extremely well documented. Are the same people who are looking for ships also looking for this stuff, or this is completely different types of people doing underwater archaeology versus shipwreck hunting? Uh, no, I mean, it's, it's generally the same same crowd, but you have sort of uh, a split. So there's what, what my father, what we've always been interested in is historic shipwrecks. Right. And then you have the treasure hunter crowd. So there's, there's a, a group that are maybe exclusively looking for treasure ships, uh, hoping to find gold and so forth on it. Uh, but then other people that are interested just in historic ships. So classic marine archaeologist is going to gravitate more towards uh, looking for historic ships as well, but certainly certainly both. Uh, Were you ever part of anything where they found a ship, you know, for the first time, like it had been lost and they rediscovered it and they were all excited by it? Because I know that happens from time to time. Oh, sure. So uh, the most famous find that that uh, father had was was uh, the Hunley. So this was a Civil War submarine uh, built uh, by the Confederates, in, uh, and it was launched in Charleston to try and break the blockade. And, and it was a primitive vessel. These guys turned a crank to propel the thing, uh, but they went offshore a mile or two, and they actually, with a spar torpedo, sank a Union warship called the Housatonic, and it was the first submarine ever to sink a ship. And... Um, but it was lost after it sank the ship and never returned to port. Oh boy! And uh, <laughs> so, uh, so he initiated you know searches for that, and his crew actually found it in 1995, and it was it was buried into the sand, and, and beautifully preserved because of that. So it was raised in 2000, and it's in a museum down in Charleston. And if you ever get down there, you have to take a look at it because it's it's an amazing historical. Artifact. So they 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 got it out of the water. And they, they raised it fully intact. And, wow! And they just found amazing things inside. I mean, there were still bones, bits of clothing from the crew. Oh my gosh! Uh, the uh, there was uh, the watch. The, the captain carried a watch. He had oh a, really? One of the greatest finds, probably of the Civil War, is is the captain, a fellow named Dixon. Um, he was in the Battle of Shiloh a year or two earlier, and he got shot, but he had a gold coin in his pocket that his girlfriend had given him. And the bullet hit this coin. And uh, so there was always a, a speculation, well, is this coin on the, on the wreck? And sure enough, when they excavated it, they found this gold coin that was bent from where the bullet had struck. And then he had it engraved. He said, my life preserver. Oh my God. So unfortunately, I only saved his life once, but just a 
really amazing artifact that they found, among many other things. That's so interesting. That's so interesting. So let's just let's just quickly talk about the the books that you're publishing today. You are a, a working writer, and that's that's what you do. Uh, how often do you come out with a new book normally? Uh, generally, a year and a half, two years, uh, something like that. So uh, I just completed completed a, a manuscript here about the last month or two, and so we'll have one coming out in uh, November. I think is our scheduled publication date. It's called the the Corsican Shadow. Okay, cool. And and I was looking a little bit, and I saw that maybe not for all of your career, but for a good part of your career, you were co-writing with your father. Right. Um, and then obviously he unfortunately passed away a couple of years ago, um, and now you're writing on your own. What is the difference for you in writing all by yourself versus co-writing with your dad? Was that a good educational thing? It seems like most writers don't have anything like that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, certainly in the first couple of books in particular. Uh, I, he lived in Arizona. I used to live in Arizona. I was just down the street from him. So for, certainly like the first two to three books worked very closely with him. I'd go over there. You know, we'd, we'd sit out certainly at the beginning and, and hash out a plot or an outline and I'd go back and write and come over and give him 50 or 100 pages and we'd go through it. And, you know, it kind of weaned me off of that pretty fast. So even, even the co-written books from probably the last five or six that I'd written did the lion's share of the work. But uh, certainly sitting down with him to go through plot ideas was always uh, uh, certainly a, a key element of that. And so that's a, a part that I do miss. <laughs> What's it like emotionally the first time you had to do it all by yourself? You had no choice. You probably wanted to reach out to him, but you couldn't, you know? Yeah, yeah, it was tough. I mean, I, you know, I, I'd already written enough books at that point. I think it certainly was near the process and knew to get through it. But, but it was sort of an empty feeling knowing that uh, he wasn't there to be able to pick up the phone and uh, bounce some ideas against and so forth. Awesome. Well, we're going to switch over right now uh, to someone from DOXA. Um, Dirk, thank you so much for talking about your father and Dirk Pitts. Um, everyone, this has been a chat with uh, Dirk Kussler, author, and uh, someone who you're going to hear more about when we talk about this, uh, this DOXA watch. Dirk, thank you so much. Thank you, Ariel. It's a real pleasure. Okay, so we're back with Yan Edux, the CEO of DOXA. Yan, we just chatted with Dirk Kussler. How important is the, we'll call it the Clive Kussler legacy relationship to the DOXA brand today? So listen, it is uh, DOXA fans, you know, you know the deep felt attachment we have to Clive Kussler and his heritage. And uh, beside Clive Kussler was not only uh, important in the literary world, he was really... Uh, instrumental in spotlighting DOXA all over, all over the globe. And for us, it's an honor today now to really show, pay tribute, you know, and to his heritage. And uh, I mean, his passion for adventure, I call it the quest for excellence, you know, and the love of the sea is definitely matching the times when he got his first watch, I think in 1968, when he got his sub 300T. And the end of the 60s, such time, also for DOXA, uh, was, was a start, you know, with the diving watches, you know, being really standing in close association in the spirit of adventure and discoveries. And who better than Clark would you wish to have for Clive Kostler, who uh, bringing those values in this literary world together with his superhero or the adventure hero, Dirk Pitt, and then all the fans behind. So, I mean, I think the beautiful thing is that so many brands, either brand new ones or old ones, wish they had a story like this. Mm -hmm. They try so hard to come up with one, to, to twist a real story to something closer to this, but you have this famous author and series of books, of which there are many, who chose your watch, who wore it and features it, and it's just out there. Yeah. 
there's nothing you have to do except service that interest and continue to satisfy expectations. It's, I guess you could call it uh, uh, inherited marketing. Yes. And you still have to use it, but you can literally build a whole business. Not that that's the only thing that Doxa has, but you can build a whole business on this, this fandom. And I think it's so interesting to talk about an enthusiast product being, being driven by fandom. And Doxa has, especially compared to a lot of real fandom, right? Like, what do you, so what do you do with that? Today, today's day, what do you do with this fandom? So it is a really show also a tribute and to combine it into today's uh, world and also the watch we were launching. It's not just to use his name and to engrave it on the back of a case. And really the development went over two years in the beginning. What are the key elements? Who Clive Kostler has been? We appreciate it to be so warmly welcomed with the family Kostler, Durek. And to take the spirit, you know, how the, how the legacy of the father, and to bring this back to a product which really needs to stand out. And when you see he was founding in 1979, he was founding NUMA, you know, the National Underwater Marine Agency. And that was the, 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 the kickoff of the inspiration, you know, where they were representing what, uh, to going back in times and centuries where all these boats sank, you know. How does a product need to look like? And then... We turned up, okay, we do something as similar what we normally do. We need to make the to make the look of the watch old. So it's the opposite. As the watch would have been also for centuries in the water. And that is why when we figured out the material to age the steel, which is not easy to do, especially not the bracelet. And then to combine also the, the beige dial, you know, with vintage compact, it's handmade. But then on top to be able to engrave on the back case every single shipwreck in relief on the back case of the watch. Wow. And when you see the product, it, 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 it's a unique product. Uh, additionally, also on the calendar disc, we marked the uh, number 7, 15, and 31 in honor of Clive Castle's birthday, you know, the 15th of July, 1931. And then also it goes together with the packaging. It, it was really our aim, okay, if we do something, it, it needs to fit the legacy of, of Clive Castler and... Uh, yeah, let's see soon how the reaction will be. Now, I'm a fan of pre-age stuff. Yeah. I'm probably one of the only watch journalists who just come, immediately jumped on the pre-age thing and said it looks cool. Yeah. It's not always done in a way that looks nice, but when it is done well, I think you agree the concept is really cool. But I know it's a controversial thing. Was it a difficult decision to make a new watch that looked old? Because I know not everyone's on board with this. No, but, but, but this, when you go back, you know this, what you mentioned before, that, that the content is there. I can't change the history. And it's a fact, and uh, we knew there was the lifetime of achievement next to, to, to what Clive Costa did in the literary world. And uh, he was so much into it. So it was even not a question if we as a brand, we stand for or not. Just do it in the right way. Right. And uh, it was not at all a hesitance. It was much more the production side, which gave us a little bit of headache, especially the bracelet. The case was... Also not easy, but the bracelet <laughs> was a nightmare. So when, when I did this, I don't know if you remember, with Laco, I designed a watch that was pre-aged. Yeah. And I remember one of the special challenges was making sure that the aging looks consistent because we had a case and a dial and a strap and packaging. They're all aged differently, yes. but then have to look consistent. So I, I, again, uh, just tell a little bit more of the story here because I think it's because I understand but people might not get, like, what does it mean that it's hard to make it look uh, It's very simple when you wash your clothes. <laughs> you need to find the right dimension because it's stone washed. Yeah. So how long you wash it, what kind of stones, 
And the prototyping was, was, was terrible because first it looked too dark, not matching the case, too light. Then we have an issue with the folded clasp, the stonewash folded clasp, wonderful, a very easy target to do. So it, it was, that's why it has taken all this, this, this time to go there. But once we, we, we found the, the right, I call it wash, the right temperature, the right stones <laughs> at the right time. And then suddenly we could go into a series, you know, it's not just by lucky, by a lucky punch, you just take one out, oh, that one is matching. So I, I need to explain to people not familiar yeah. with this industrial yeah. process, because uh, you're right. So essentially there's a, uh, it's a, a tumbler, if you will, and the metal parts are put into a container with what's called media, and either sort of vertically or horizontally, there's different axes it can go. It, it vibrates or it turns or spins for a period of time, and exactly as Jan said, the amount of time it's in the machine versus the media itself, the material, the size, the vibration or the duration, all of that has a very big impact on the end result. And you're right, it's like a different spin cycle. You know, you're like, at five minutes, looks perfect. 10 minutes, the thing's shrunk and looks stupid. And you just have to go through dozens and dozens of iterations. That's why it took two years, right? Yeah. Okay, so that so so you're 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 finally happy with it. How much more are you allowed to charge? Right, because there's so much more time and effort, but you can't charge that much more. Like, did you have to eat a bunch of R and D on this? No, it's it's uh, listen. In this project, it, it was not that, that that we spent millions. It's not this, but in our time. It, it's time and time is money. But that was out of question for us to to, to even think about. Um, it was also a, a challenging process for us, you know. It's, it's interesting in the watch industry. Normally, when we launch a watch, it needs to look new, it needs to be solid, it needs to be rigged or whatever. And you do something to turn something into age, you do something. But it was beautiful. So, uh, uh, But it's on the cost factor, once you have it, it is not that it's exponentially more expensive. Once you get it, you have it. So now you're able to do this process. Is this going to be something that you might do for other watches? Listen, that's an open question mark. It's uh, maybe. Uh, uh, maybe, but uh, on the other side, this is now really a special edition. It's not limited, but it's numbered. Okay. Uh, and we also so you don't want to take value away from this concept. No, this is this is this will be. It's uh, not, and, and the idea is not just this, that we also donate a certain percentage of the sales to Numa, and uh, we are very proud to support this organization's history, such as uh, the Bright Future. So don't go there, make copy paste. It stands there. And as it's not limited, because in the beginning, the people would have the direction, make it limited. I said, no, in this case, look at the fans club. I don't want to frustrate the market in having a limited edition. And every watch is sold, you donate indirectly a certain percentage to Numa that these guys then can go on looking for shipwrecks. I think that's smart not to make a limited yeah. edition. I've been speaking against this. I think that what yeah. you're talking about is perfect. There's no promise in how fast you make them. Yeah. You just make what you want when you want. If the market wants a few more, trickling them out, I agree, is, is the right direction to go. So uh, this launch right here is in New York City, or at the Yacht Club, which is really beautiful. Um, I don't think anyone at the Yacht Club would hope that um, their boat would be in a, in a, in a Dirk Pitts novel, because that means it would have sunk, right? Mm. <laughs> no, that would not be good. <laughs> just thinking quite philosophically about it. Um, but. You know, just in general with Doxa, you have this, this fandom and you are really appreciated amongst these fans. What do you do as a brand to further step up? Because I know that, that you want that, right? I can see in, your, in, your, in your, your, your goals and your energy that you want Doxa to get, I'd say, 
more of the awareness you think it deserves. How does all this sort of build into your larger strategy? So listen, the strategy, it's also not complex. It is a uh, doxa when you go back, had uh, a huge fan base, but was going into a direction where it started to take a risk to become a museum brand. What do you mean by that? Museum brand is uh, the fan base is aging. Mm -hmm. And fa for me, a museum brand is when people come to you, they clap on your shoulders, you talk about the past, but no one is thinking to buy a watch anymore. And you need to have the next ah. generation, you know, the next generation. Respected brand that nobody wants to buy. Exactly. So that, that the forums, and, and, and this is great, but the, it's a question of the next generation who live now when we, we started to, to, to give it a, 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 a rebirth. Doxa was there before, but it was purely in a niche. And, and it was important to go to the next generation. And I, I'm, I'm giving really the statement when you talk about Cousteau. Go to the young kids today out on the road. They will ask you, is this a new player from Paris Saint-Germain? So we <laughs> the all the thing everyone knows, and it's not the case. True. And so as with Clive Costler, other bridges we have to the past and to combine it in today's world, this brand deserves first-time buyers, new buyers, and it works. So you need to adapt a little bit to collection to make it accessible. It was also important that Oxa goes into the offline market. We did something atypical. Other brands, they were in the offline market. Now they shrink down and want to go to the online. Doxa was anti-cycled on the online market, no retailers, and we do very exclusively the opposite way. You need the presence of end consumers. They may go into a store, they come in for another brand. Uh, for whatever reasons, they see Doxa, and like this, you, this brand deserves discovery. And this is what we do. I think that makes uh, an, an awful lot of sense. So we're basically about out of, um, Yan, where would you like to direct uh, readers' attention? Uh, what's the DOXA website and anywhere else you want them to check out online to learn more information? So it's, it's, it's really a DOXA website or with our esteemed partners, the retailers, we keep that very exclusive. We're not everywhere online and that's a proposal, we're not selling through third parties platform, keep it exclusive. And uh, for me, DOXA has really a, a great potential in years to come. Uh, to be a, a wonderful, a wonderful boutique brand, selling number of watches, but really control the distribution and control price. That makes a lot of sense. Yan, thank you so much for talking uh, with us about Doxa, and thank you for everyone listening to the uh, part of the interview with Dirk Kussler. We look forward to chatting more. Yan, thank you so much. Thank you. Aria. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Superlative Podcast. Support the show by subscribing and rating it on your preferred podcast platform. For questions, comments, and ideas, please email the show at superlative at blog2watch.com. For the latest in watch news, reviews, and culture, visit ablogtowatch.com.